Welcome to Curve Beam Connect. Listen in monthly as we talk with doctors and experts in the field discussing innovations and insights into orthopedic imaging. Hello, welcome to Curve Beam Connect. My name is Vinti Singh. I am the Director of Marketing here at Curve Beam. Uh, today's episode is one that I am absolutely thrilled about. We have two of the uh, foremost researchers in the space of looking at hind foot alignment in weight-bearing 3D using weight-bearing CT imaging. And they're here with us today to share their insights and their perspectives on what the research is telling us. It is my pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Soren Siegler and Dr. Arnie Burstens. Welcome to both of you today. And let's start with, would you mind just both uh, providing a brief introduction? Okay, so uh, I am uh, Soren Siegler. I am a professor of biomechanics uh, in the Department of Mechanical Engineering at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Uh, my uh, specialty and uh, main interest is in the biomechanics of the foot and ankle. And in that area, I specifically uh, recently been interested in the total ankle replacement, design and development of total ankle replace replacement in um, evaluating ligament injuries using different uh, uh, methodologies that are image-based and on image-based modeling of the, of the human uh, foot and ankle. Thank you for the invitation, Vinti. Uh, my name is Arne Bursens. I'm currently working as a foot and ankle surgeon at the Ghent University Hospital in Belgium. We are treating a lot of patients uh, struggling with hind foot deformities. And that's why our research is also focused on quantifying hind foot alignment and get particularly more insights in what this deformity in the hind foot is constituting to and how we can treat our patients better because at the moment we're using radiographs and weight-bearing CT and see how weight-bearing CT can change our approach towards these complex deformities. Well, great. Well, I'm really looking forward to uh, what we discussed today. There's uh, so much um, in, in just this particular field of research. And so, uh, and again, both of you have, have really been uh, sort of at the forefront of that in your investigation. So excited to hear your perspectives. Let's start with, can you describe for us what are what is the current sort of standard for measuring hind foot alignment in the foot? Uh, what are the traditional methods and what are the limitations um, uh, that come along with those those methods? That's an interesting question, Vinti. Uh, in clinical practice, we have a lot of methods to determine hind foot alignment. And this you can see here on uh, our image. This is reflected in a lot of papers and studies focuses on these methods. And this also reflects a bit the difficulty of the problem. Because if you have a lot of studies on a topic, that means that it's not clear, that it's not straightforward, and that there are a lot of uh, technical um, advantages. So here you could see, for example, a patient that is imaged by a classical uh, weight-bearing radiographs, and immediately you see it's very difficult to outline the hind foot because there is a lot of superposition of the osseous structures, and that's caused by the midfoot. So this is always um, a difficulty during the imaging process that is tried to overcome by different methods that are described in the literature. One other problem we're facing in the literature is the patient positioning during the imaging process. And this can change a lot to our radiographic measurements. 
for example, here you can see that the foot that it's a bit more internally rotated, and this will give a completely different radiographic measurements. And these are important because they really can alter our clinical decision making. And if the deformity is too pronounced, this will mean that there has to be an arthrodesis, which means the joint has to be fused and cannot save it anymore. Whether on other radiographic images where the deformity is measured to a lesser extent, then we can still do a joint sparing procedure. So that's why these measurements particularly are relevant because they're really influencing our clinical decision making. I was going to add that um, there are also three-dimensional based measurements in addition to the two-dimensional ones. And the one uh, that uh, recently has been used quite a bit is the uh, FAO measurements that are based on uh, the, the entire foot. So in a sense, that uh, FAO provides a measure, not really of hind foot alignment per se, but of foot alignment. So it uses the, uh, the tibia, for example, is not represented, it's not presented in that, uh, in that measure. Um, however, it has been shown that FAO measures that can be obtained from the 3D weight bearing CT is correlated, has some correlation to the hind foot alignment. However, obviously, none of these two measures, whether it is two-dimensional or the ones that is based on FAO, includes the alignment of the ankle itself and of the subtalar joint itself, which together contribute to the hind foot alignment. So, Dr. Siegler, your research, uh, what you've done is you've attempted to account for this and and actually uh, answer those questions, which unfortunately FAO uh, leaves unopened and, and, you know, 2D radiographs, as Dr. Burson's mentioned, are, are just, just completely inadequate. Uh, would you like to talk about your approach and uh, using weight-bearing CT, uh, the methodology that you have come up with and what you're proposing for uh, fully understanding um, hind foot alignment in a 3D environment. Yes. So the uh, the problem is uh, quite complicated because we have two joints as well as the hind foot itself. And the alignment is really occurring not just in one dimension, it's occurring in three dimensions. So uh, in order to capture those, I had several principles that, uh, uh, guiding principles. One is that we fully describe the uh, position and orientation of each one of the bones, the, the, the tibia, the talus, and the calcaneus. And in order to do that, we define a reference frame for each one of those bones based on the specific morphology of, which, of each one of those bones. A second guiding principle was that the measures should be relevant to clinically relevant, which means that they would be should be inspired or are inspired by clinical measures that are done usually by eye or in a qualitative manner by a surgeon during alignment procedure, for example, as he, is, as he or she does a total ankle replacement or aligns a total ankle replacement. So those are the guiding principles. And now I'll just go quickly, uh, show you the, uh, uh, the, um, the, the methodology. So, I will, I will do this with very, with, uh, without getting into uh, too many of the details and uh, uh, 
just describe the, 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 the uh, basic principles. So here is the tibia. We define the long axis of the tibia based on the centroid of the uh, um, uh, articular surfaces on the proximal end, which you see on the left, and on the distal end, which you see on the right. So we identify those centroids and the line connecting those two is the long axis of the tibia, which surgically it's, done, it's uh, identified also using different instrumentations combined with X-ray usually in the clinic. Now, the, uh, the, the long axis of the tibia, once we define it, we, have a we define the plane perpendicular to it as the axial plane of the tibia. Then we define the borders of the tail of the uh, uh, tibial plateau. And you can see those two, those two borders on the medial and the lateral side uh, on the right. So those borders would correspond to the uh, medial and lateral borders, gutters, that clinician would use as he tries to estimate the direction from anterior to posterior. When we project those two planes onto the axial plane and bisect those, that, that line between them, which is exactly what the clinician does by eye, we de that defines for us the, uh, the direction from anterior to posterior. And the plane that is perpendicular to the axial plane containing that line is the sagittal plane of the, uh, of the tibia. Then the, the common perpendicular to those is the coronal plane, and that defines for us the reference frame, fully defines for us the reference frame for the tibia. The next one is for the telos, which is shown in the next uh, slide. And here we're using a similar approach. We first, the most uh, obvious feature, uh, morphological feature of the telos is the telar dome. And if you look on the medial side, the telar dome has all, uh, the, the medial side, the medial shoulder, is almost like perpendicular to the tailor dome. So we take that plane, we define this, those two planes, the, sh the shoulder of the talus on the medial and on the lateral side. And then the axial plane, we take it as the perpendicular to the medial, medial plane, medial circle. Using a very similar approach to what I showed for the tibia, we'll project those two circles up onto the axial plane. Those are basically the inner part of the gutter of the that uh, that a, uh, a surgeon would estimate, and um, the bisector of those two of uh, of those two lines, which are labeled here L1, L2, and M1, M2, is the anterior posterior direction of the talus plane containing that line and perpendicular to the axial plane. Then becomes the sagittal plane of the talus. The relationship between those the, between, for example, the anterior uh, direction of the talus and that of the tibia would tell how the, uh, how the uh, talus is oriented uh, in, in, in the internal, external uh, direction. But obviously, it's more than just that one direction. It's full three-dimensional. The next one is for the calcaneus. So uh, for the calcaneus, we look at the start with the posterior side of the uh, calcaneus. So identify the most superior and most inferior point on that uh, posterior part and take that line from SP to IP bisect that line and that gives us like a center of that posterior part. We do the same thing on the, uh, not the same thing, but on the anterior part, we look at where it uh, articulates with the cuboid and then and uh, look at the centroid of that um, articulation, which is the point CP. The line connecting those two points define the um, anterior to posterior direction of the calcaneus and the plane perpendicular to it is the coronal plane of the calcaneus. 
Then the, the plane that contains the posterior line, SPMP, and perpendicular to the coronal is the sagittal plane of the calcaneus. And then those two together with the third one, which is the common perpendicular, fully define the directions for the calcaneus. So, so this, uh, this way we have now definition for each one of those three, uh, three bones. And the alignment either for the ankle, uh, the alignment either for the ankle, which is between the talus and the tibia, or for the subtalar joint, which is between the calcaneus and the, and the talus, or the hind foot, really, which is between the calcaneus and the tibia, can be fully defined in three dimensions by defining the relationship between those reference frames. And again, here, the guiding principle in making the definition is that they should be clinically relevant. They should use terminology that are that is uh, that is used by clinicians in visualizing and uh, and treating these joints, such as uh, you know uh, varus valgus, uh, internal external rotation, inversion eversion, and uh, dorsiflexion and plantar flexion. And in uh, those terms, we then define the the uh, um, alignment between. As I say, between ankle, subtalar, and hind foot. Now, uh, an example of alignment, of a normal alignment, you can see in that figure. If you go to the next figure, it shows you a very misaligned foot, clearly misaligned foot. You can see the anterior, uh, the uh, anterior view or the coronal view on the right hand side, and then obviously uh, you can look how how um, um, deformed that foot is both in that plane as well as in the other plane. So obviously the problem is not a single plane misalignment, but is a multi-plane misalignment. So this methodology allows you to take into account that the hind foot uh, does have several components and it's not going to be uh, a singular uh, angle um, that is defining it, but allows for a combination of um, you know measurements. Uh, Dr. Burstens, what is your reaction when you see this uh, proposed methodology by Dr. Siegler, both as a clinician yourself and as a researcher? What are what are your thoughts on uh, the solution that he's proposing? Well, Viti, I think it's a very well thought of method because it takes firstly into account important clinical aspects, being the gutters. That's indeed a structure within the ankle joint that's used a lot for referencing the components, for example, of a tonal ankle arthropathy. So it's always important, like uh, Professor Ziegler mentioned, that you take into account this information that's being used during surgical procedures and you bring it in your method of uh, determining your hind foot alignment. What I also like on the method, it contains a very robust um, definition of your coordinate system and not only from your uh, tibiotalar joint, but also from your subtalar joint. So that it's by the same method and the same principles, you can quantify directly the whole hind foot alignment. So that's something that we really are excited about in uh, adapting those uh, methods uh, for TD measurements also in our clinical practice and see, for example, how this relates to other measurement methods that are available to uh, determine hind foot alignment. Uh, Dr. Bersens, you have also done um, your your own investigations and have come up with your own methodologies as well. Uh, would you like to share uh, sort of what 
you have formulated and come up with as a potential standard for analyzing hind foot alignment in three dimensions? Thank you, Venti. We, we have uh, some images illustrating the methods that we also described uh, in several studies. And it's actually, uh, you're saying a, a method uh, developed by us, but it, actually it's mainly based on what was previously published in, in the literature. So our, our goal was really to use a lot of uh, previously described measurements uh, on radiographs that clinicians were using daily uh, to treat the uh, patients and, and uh, the site uh, procedures. So we didn't try to defer that much from what was already uh, described. One important um, reference was, of course, the axis of the tibia, also mentioned by uh, Professor Ziegler. What is different uh, in our method is that we um, use the anatomical structure per se. Professor Ziegler nicely uh, illustrated that you can uh, measure on the tibia plateau and the tibia plafond the landmarks of the articular surfaces and connect those centroids. Um, that, that's a very accurate method, of course. But we, we try to um, use the anatomical structure. For example, here, the distal tibia is giving in a weight-bearing CT. We make a three-dimensional model of um, the distal tibia. And you can see here that we give the software the instruction to compute the best fitted axis on the distal tibia. So this runs very volumetric, like you can see here on these images in, in the center of uh, the tibia. So we, we try to eliminate as much as possible the user interference for uh, deciding such a method. And this anatomical tibia axis uh, is quantified first, and then we determine the axis of our hind foot. Firstly, by saying to the computer, this is the calcaneus in the three-dimensional model, please calculate the most inferior, most plantar point on the heel, and the most center point of the talus, the centroid of the volume of the talus, and connect both with each other, so that you can actually try to eliminate as much as user interference as possible. And this axis with the intersection of the uh, TB axis becomes our hind foot angle. It's, it's a bit based on, on what is also uh, described by, by, by Salzman. And it was a moment arm in Salzman's article, but some authors, when you do this intersection, like here, describe it as a Salzman angle for the hind foot alignment. And that's exactly what we're trying to implement in those uh, three-dimensional models. If you're going to um, the next image, you can see that these three-dimensional models have also some other advantages because we were mainly looking on the plane radiographs towards angular deformity in, in the coronal or sagittal plane, but we were looking not that much towards our rotation and it's, it's known, for example, that the hind foot valgus alignment is associated with internal rotation of the tibia and oppositely for a hind foot varus alignment, of course. And that's why we used, again, those models and those computer-based uh, landmarks. For example, here we ask the computer, please compute our most lateral point of the anterior tubercle of the incisura fibularis. 
Same for the posterior point and the axis of both we can use to quantify the rotation before and after a surgical procedure of uh, the tibia. So these are some interesting approaches we try to implement, being always with the same principle to have as much as uh, user or as less as user interference as uh, possible. Uh, if you go on the, the next image, you can see that these measurements are always need to be uh, referenced to a frame for me uh, with my surgical background. This was in the beginning a bit difficult uh, to understand because I say, why do you need this additional reference frame that, that Professor Ziegler explained? Because you have an angle in, 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 in 3D. Uh, what's the problem with that? You already have that angle. But the problem is that if you have a big deformity and a big uh, three-dimensional angle, it doesn't give you information on where the deformity is located. So that's why you really need to have those reference frame to know for yourself, is this a sagittal deformity or more coronal deformity or more rotational deformity? So that's really why you need to have those uh, global reference frames. And for this, we also try to focus on what was previously published. Here, this is one important paper of which Professor Ziegler was also part, where you can see the ISB recommendations for the orientations of the ankle uh, global reference system. And we try to implement as much as possible those reference frames to quantify our uh, hind foot alignment based on the same principle. And one interesting um, point that I want to show here is that the longitudinal axis here is a uh, reference towards the second ray, which is used in um, quite a lot of biomechanical studies as well. But a discussion with uh, Professor Ziegler prior to this uh, videocast was quite interesting. Because I noticed in, in his uh, methods, which is quite interesting, that he shows that this anterior posterior axis can be determined uh, on, on other structures. And this is quite an advantage because the second ray is something independent from, from your hind foot, but still you use it a, as a reference. So if you have, for example, a metatarsal fracture on the, on the, on the, on the second ray, this methodology is, is not reliable anymore. So that's why I also like in, in the proposal of uh, Professor Ziegler that we can have other methods to uh, reference or alignment than that second ray. But still, because it was described like that, we, we, we try to implement it and have a first impression of, of how we can translate, really translate those images and, and measurements from, from the 2D environment to what we are currently doing in, uh, in the three-dimensional models. So if you would go to the next slide, one interesting application that we can do is that we can use the same measurements for our assessment of our deformity corrections, not only to plan them, but also to understand what we were doing. And for that, we use the same reference frame, but you can see here that we do a projection to bring it to the base plate of the wave. So this is actually the ground floor. This is also used in a lot of um, plane radiographs that you use the floor where the patient is uh, standing for his imaging. And it's an interesting 
landmark because the the floor is always the same. This doesn't change whether you have a, 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 a difficult a difficult deformity or not. This this plane is always the same. So it was very interesting to use this plane because I, we can really see how, for example, the height of the navicular is changing after a flat foot correction, which is of course uh, an important landmark to give information on how well you performed your correction. We used several uh, three-dimensional models. As you can see here, we described this in different papers. But I think this is one uh, interesting uh, implementation that uh, we wanted uh, to point out. So thank you, Vinti. I think this already gives an overview on, on what we are doing at the moment. Wonderful. And Dr. Siegler, could I invite you to respond to uh, Dr. Burson's uh, research and proposed methodologies? What are your thoughts and reactions? Yeah, so I uh, I like those uh, those definitions very much. I I, uh, I really appreciate and 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 am grateful for the for Army for combining measurements that are done in uh, that were done in two D, trying to transfer them into three D. For example, the Salzman angle, taking it from the two D realm into the three D realm. Uh, it's a, it's an important feature because it's as, as as you know it's not just a two dimensional problem it's more a three dimensional problem and also i am very much appreciative of the fact that uh, arnie is taking the uh, uh relationship the, the the clinical his clinical uh, knowledge and his clinical experience to implement it into this uh, into these measurements and to translate him into measurements that can be rigorous and uh, repeatable. So, so I very much appreciate that. I think that, um, and uh, as we go into the future, more of this kind of a dialogues between, from the one side, the biomechanics and from the clinical, combining them together, which I believe uh, Dr. Burson does extremely, did here extremely well. It's a very important uh, uh, aspect in moving forward into in this direction. Regardless of what uh, methodology ultimately becomes adapted on a wide scale, uh, whether it's one or the other or a combination of both, both of you are using pretty advanced computer modeling methods in making these calculations. Uh, how do we make the measurements that you're coming up with how can those be practically acquired in a clinical setting? If you don't have an advanced uh, computer modeling software or something like that, how, how do we take it to the next step so that uh, it can be a, a routine process? I think that's uh, from the clinical point of view, um, the important uh, factor is the timing. So because Professor Ziegler, thank you for the kind words uh, for the three-dimensional models, very uh, Highly appreciated, but I think you know as well how much time it takes for com modeling those uh, images from from the CT, and especially in the beginning for doing the segmentations, meaning that from your single CT slices you outline the cortices of the bone to compose those three-dimensional models. It can be very time-consuming, and your patient he want to know <laughs> what is. Um, the planning and he doesn't want to wait that hours uh, before uh, the planning is ready so i think one important uh, 
but is is working on that um, time consumption. And I think Vinti, if you could open uh, one of the last images that we had uh, in our presentation. So I think we are already entering our future targets here, but one of those is really that automated segmentation process that will give us those automated measurements that will definitely be very important to to adapt those methodologies in clinical practice because then we can really have a real-time uh, assessment of our angular deformity and we have an interesting method from professor Ziegler. there was one described uh, on our three-dimensional models and i think uh, we are now as professor Ziegler say it's, it's uh, important to combine this, this clinical with engineering background uh, we are now and having some interesting discussion with, with other engineers and other clinicians. Some standard committees are being established to discuss those type of measurements. On, and I hope um, that we can bring this to uh, some recommendations for for the clinical practice. I think Professor Ziegler, perhaps you can say uh, you have a lot of experience in establishing uh, recommendations for clinical practice for biomechanics uh, what are your uh, take focuses on, on this important subject how can we increase this or uh, make this collaboration positive between those, those engineering or how what do you think is is, is our, our challenges sure. to, that we're facing now so I'd be very happy to do that actually Arnie thank you the um, uh, what would the um, um, as was mentioned here, it really is the the in the um, clinical transfer or or the transfer of this information to the to a clinical practice that is really important. Obviously, the system that I showed before, although it's complete, although it's as it as it does require segmentation. It does require identification of morphological features, not only possible, not always possible uh, in an automatic fashion. Now, I think that to do the translation into the clinic, it has to have the correct collaboration between engineers and the clinician. And I want to demonstrate this with one slide. If I may get my last slide here for a second. So the idea is the following. There is a time, a certain timeout, and usually a surgeon does have a timeout between the time that the image is done, that is taken before, whether let's say it's total anchor replacement or whether it's uh, ligament reconstructions or any procedure, or maybe fusion and so on, and the time when the surgery is done. So within that period of time, the surgeons can uh, the, the the technicians the the, uh, the the technical person can produce a 3d rendering of the uh, of the entire system of the hind foot of the bones using then the measurements that i described before the alignment can be defined once we have the def definition of the alignment then on the computer the the um, the technician can modify the alignment 
to bring it into a normal alignment, to bring a misaligned foot into an aligned foot. He can also collaborate with the clinician, with the specific clinician, to verify that that, that realignment is proper. The next step is, once you have the aligned foot of the misaligned, starting with the misaligned, going into aligned, you can create a template. The 3D information that is available to us today and the 3D technology that is available to us today, we can easily create templates that capture the aligned configuration. You can see it here. You can see it here. What uh, in the you see the uh, the foot on the one side on the left. What you see there in the middle is basically the negative of the tibial part and of the and of the tailored part. You see, here is that, and you create and you have now one template. Then template allows then the surgeon during the surgery to capture the aligned position or to do whatever he needs to do to, and then once the aligned position is captured, then everything can be done. For example, cuts for a total ankle replacement can be produced. Um, tensioning of ligaments can be done. Reconstructions can be done using that template, which is a very simple, basically, you can imagine like a plastic or, <laughs> you know, like a 3D printed, PLA that allows you to align to align the foot in the proper position, the surgeon. So that is the so that template is really the communication between the uh, between the engineer and the clinical application. Because without that, a clinician will have a very tough time to implement that alignment following those initial definitions. And we're working on that right now in, um, in doing alignments of uh, total ankle replacements, for instance, in producing the cuts for total ankle replacements. That's very interesting. So, Dr. Caesar, what you're proposing is taking, you know, sort of the, the PSI methods that are becoming more and more standard for total ankle replacements, applying them across the board to even more foot and ankle surgical procedures. So, basically, no matter what you're doing, whether it's in and osteotomy or, or whatever type of correction you're performing, um, there is always this uh, template for proper alignment uh, that the surgeon has to guide their their correction. Dr. Bursons, what are what are your reactions to that? What are your thoughts? So my thoughts are really that that, that uh, Professor Ziegler is hitting the nail. That's really where we have to go to. Um, if you just can show one more time the the last slide from our uh, presentation. I just want to add to that that it's really important to focus to realign the hind foot not only on the distal part of the tibia, but that we have the entire, ideally from the entire lower limb, the alignment. And also if we could already from the tibia, because sometimes the short segments of the tibia can give some inaccuracies in quantifying our alignment. So I think this um, solution will be in, in the recent uh, generation and evolution in the weight-bearing CT scans where they really can get up to the hip and have your entire lower limb alignment. It was also, I saw in one of the, the recent talks of uh, Professor Mark Easley, 
he really emphasized it for his total ankle replacement. He really wants to get that uh, full lower limb alignment to have this correct positioning, ideally already planned with those uh, patient-specific uh, instruments. And one other side note, it's uh, still a side note, now we're really focusing on, on the bony alignment. And if you just go, and go to the previous slide, Fenty, then you can see here that it's not only your bony alignment that's mattering, but also the amount of cartilage that's still present in the articulation. That's also for us an important indicator to go for a joint saving procedure or, for example, to a total ankle arthroplasty or even arthrodesis. And one other interesting part that we're now bringing from our MRI scans to the positioning of our patient in the weight-bearing CT using those bony landmarks is to have the soft tissues present. At the moment, you still have to do an MRI and the weight-bearing CT, but we're trying to implement, based on the landmarks where the ligaments are positioned, to have that information all in once and that, for example, the patient just needs to have some kind of uh, elastography where his uh, ligament properties are determined. But I think incorporating all these variables will bring us better to the truth of what the patient's problems are facing at the moment he's presenting in our clinical practice. And this will definitely aid in our vertical clinical decision-making to treat that uh, particular patient. So the takeaway there is... Um no matter what uh, methodology we end up adopting um, for weight-bearing CT, hindfoot alignment measurements, we are, we are still going to make sure that we take into consideration the soft tissue and uh, the, the soft tissue forces. You cannot just look at the, the bony angles alone. Um, yes. what, what would be the consequences if, if you did that, if you did not consider the, the, the soft tissue structure surrounding those angles? For example, if you would have a very stiff hind foot, it would really be challenging to have a joint saving procedure because your correction from the bone will be very nicely done, but the other parts of the foot will have difficulties to follow. So this will be creating deformities that perhaps are corrected in the hind foot, but not in other parts of the foot, and, and your patient will have some uh, remaining discomfort. But uh, if I may ask to Professor Zero, because these, these soft tissues are really an engineering challenge, how, how should we approach them with some, uh, I think the, the finite elements are, are described, but I have saw recent techniques that we can use for, or, or even with the distance uh, mapping, I think that's also uh, a particular thing that can be, uh, that we can implement in our, our models or how, how, how can we do this most ideally or engineerically sounds? The, the problem of the soft tissue is really a very, very difficult uh, problem. Um, in terms of the locations, the insertions, and the morphology of those ligaments, I think what you have shown here is pretty much what can be done without, of course, resorting to very complicated and time-consuming MRI bases where you are trying to identify each ligament in its different planes. Very difficult and very time-consuming process. Uh, as you mentioned, the idea would then to transfer that knowledge into um, 
into the bone morphology to identify the insertions of those ligaments, as you mentioned, exactly. And this is exactly the process that we are using when we are uh, developing models of the, uh, uh, of the foot and ankle. As far as the mechanical properties, this is a very, again, extremely difficult, particularly if you're trying to personalize it. So in terms of personalizing, it's extremely difficult. The, uh, we do have measures and uh, we have done ourselves some testing on each one of the ligaments surrounding the ankle to look at its uh, mechanical properties and we quantify that. However, as you, uh, what happens if you have only a partial tear, let's say, or a sprain where the ligament is only partially torn so its mechanical properties have been changed. So the only possibility that I have seen there is to, through a model, to look at the behavior of the entire joint, at the laxity or the stiffness of the entire joint, and from, from that model to infer about the individual stiffnesses of each ligament. Very difficult still, but this is the, the, the way that uh, perhaps can be done with the exception, of course, of very uh, difficult systems of actually trying to measure by elastograms or other methods the properties of each ligament itself. Yeah. That sounds like we still have a lot of challenges ahead. Yes, with that, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it, you're right, it emphasizes that both of you, the work that you've done, you've progressed our understanding of, uh, you know, the forces in the foot when it comes to hind foot alignment deformities so much um, just in the past few years, but there is still so much that is left to be uncovered or understood. And, and I, um, I can see why this is such a fascinating area of study, because there is just uh, the, the, the complexity of the, of the forces is, is always going to leave uh, more to be uncovered. Sort of on that note, um, what are you both, uh, where are you looking to next? What is the next step for you uh, when it comes to your research? Uh, what is the question that you are most excited about answering? Um, what is the progression for, for you personally in, in your labs? So um, for me, and I've been working, I guess, for the last 15 to 20 years, trying to develop a model a realistic model of the foot and ankle that captures not just a single isolated behavior, but that captures the behavior, the mechanical behavior of the foot and ankle. And in moving into that direction, I have seen this development occurring over many technologies. For example, the technology of the CT and MRI, which became a standard, so you can now do image-based modeling. Um, as I, as uh, um, Dr. Uh, uh, Burson mentioned, and, uh, uh, and as we know, there's still a long way to go because mechanical properties, individualized mechanical properties are very difficult to implement. However, individualized morphology is available to us. So using in the individualized morphology and and thriving and thriving towards better representation of the soft tissue, the my main goal, my main uh, goal would be to to see a foot and ankle model 
numerical model, computational model that is image-based and it's personalized and it is validated that can well represent and can be, well be used for designing surgical procedures on a personalized basis, selection of total anchor replacement on a personal basis, performing different surgeries on a personal basis. This is my uh, where I hope to eventually reach <laughs> in my lifetime. But this is, I think, the goal that uh, that. Uh, that sounds for me also the ideal world. And uh, we're also trying to strive to that uh, goal. Uh, one other interest that we have is now that we have those weight-bearing CTs that reaching up to the knee, up to the hip, it's also for us of interest. For example, what is a knee osteotomy or procedure at the level of the knee doing to the alignment of a hind foot? That's also a particular interesting uh, domain for us, and uh, we hope to... Uh, provide some uh, further results in that area. Uh, that gives uh, Curve Beam and the rest of the medical and you know patient community a lot to sort of look forward to and keep an eye on. Um, I'm hoping that we can connect again, uh, maybe in, in another year or so. I'm sure your research will have progressed even further. And uh, potentially we in that time, we may have even um, from a the perspective of the medical community even moved towards starting to establish some standards for uh, hind foot alignment uh, measurements in weight-bearing CT. Um, any final thoughts that either of you would like to add before we conclude? Well, um, maybe one thing is that I would love to see the... Um, um, uh, Arnie has shown earlier in one of his slides work that we have done in 2000 and I believe. Actually, we started in 2000. So that's what, like 22 years ago, right? And mm -hmm. the purpose mm -hmm. there for the under the ISB, the ISB standards, right? For the kinematics. Mm -hmm. And from that time, it took, it took this long for those standards to be accepted, let's say both by the biomechanical community, and I'm very happy to see, even by part of the clinical community. And I think that the main, uh, my, my last thought is that uh, once some kind of an agreement is reached, no matter what, but that some kind of agreement is reached, I know that it will take a long time to implement it and to, to get it accepted into the clinical community, as well as into the biomechanical community. That's my last thought, that whatever we come up with today, it's not going to be the last word in standards, but it will take a lot of modifications, adjustments, and acceptance by the communities to be, to be finally, uh, you know, to finally reach a stage where it's an acceptable practice. But it's an important one. Yes, but an important effort. And, and uh, you know, uh, I think the medical community can be thankful that you are championing that and that you are driving that forward and making sure that um, we are establishing those baseline standards. I fully agree on that. And I'm still uh, very enthusiastic and excited to further collaborate with uh, Professor Ziegler on those measurements and, and see how we really can uh, give some kind of standardization because this would really also facilitate 
the way we would do studies, comparative studies uh, with other centers. So it is really a very important and uh, exciting uh, step forward. And I think um, it was a pleasure to have shown what was uh, already uh, made from progress in this area. And I think it's it's been quite a lot because we have to realize that, that it's only the last couple of years that the weight-bearing CT was introduced. And if you can see here, how much has already changed from first reports in 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 um, 2013 14 of of uh, single accesses on the weight bearing CT slices to completely bringing it to three dimensional models, automated segmentations, measurements. So I think we're we're, we're really uh, um, not only excited for the future, but also what uh, the weight bearing CTs already made possible in the field of uh, foot uh, and ankle surgery. So I think that we're very glad on that uh, evolution because it's really giving us a lot of uh, innovative insights on, on the surgical procedures we're performing, on the pathologies we're treating. So I'm looking forward what else is out there for uh, the weight-bearing CTs to uh, reveal. Thank you. If I may just say one word, I would like to thank you, Vinti, for giving us the opportunity, giving me the opportunity to to present my thoughts on this topic that has been quite dear to me for many years. And I also like to very much thank Dr. Bursons for sharing his ideas and his uh, uh, work with uh, with us today, which is quite inspiring. So I would very much, as, uh, as, uh, as you mentioned, I would very much like to continue on this collaboration and uh, uh, hopefully to reach that point where something can be presented to the larger community, both clinical and mechanical. Thank you. Well, Kirby, it's very honored to, to be the platform for you to share your knowledge. And uh, I'll just speak on behalf of Kirby, you know, when those, those standards uh, are reached for how we're defining hindfoot alignment in weight-bearing three dimensions, you know, we hope that we can be the leader in, in coming up with those automated measurements uh, basically making it uh, completely seamless um, so that it can be uh, integrated into to clinical and, and research practice. So uh, again, thank you both so much. Uh, thank you to everyone who tuned in. Uh, for more information, please visit www.curvebeam.com and we will see you on the next episode of Curvebeam Connect. Thank you. Thank you, Venti. Thank you, Professor Ziegler. The pleasure was all mine and I was very honored and it was a very learningful video cast. Thank Thanks a lot.